DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. On today's program, after the botched Russia revolt, what's next for Prigozhin in Belarus? He has the battle experience necessary, so it would be wasteful not to use him. Ukrainian prisoners of war are freed, but why weren't they handed over to Kyiv? And not content with electric car dominance, Norway may soon mine the precious metals needed to power them. We could manage oil and gas industry with the highest standard of safety and environmental planning and so on, which can be transferred into the deep sea mineral industry. Those stories and more coming up on the program. Russian President Vladimir Putin there hailing the country's military and law enforcement for averting what he called a civil war following an armed mutiny by Wagner mercenary fighters last weekend. The revolt, led by Evgeny Prigozhin, has left world leaders, intelligence agencies and the public scratching their heads. Was the head of Russia's private army really trying to overthrow Putin? punish the country's military for its lack of support in the Ukraine war, or just seeking revenge for his units disbanding? And what happened to change his mind just hours later? Prigozhin was offered the chance to live in exile in Belarus, where some of his mercenaries have also been welcomed. And this move has been denounced by Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tsiannaskaya in an interview with DW. They might be welcomed by Lukashenko, but Lukashenko is not a Belarusian people. Belarusian people reacted very decisively. They showed clearly that we are against the presence of Prigozhin on our land because it's, first of all, a threat to uh, security of people. Then it's a threat to our independency, but also it's a threat to our neighbours. While Putin's grip on power appears somewhat diminished, not everyone is convinced that this is the last we'll hear of the Wagner Group. I asked Marina Miron, a Russia expert at King's College London, if the Belarus move really does rule out any future role for Prigozhin in the Ukraine conflict. Perhaps, just thinking ahead, given the capabilities of Wagner and given the fact that Prigozhin used to be very close to Putin and uh, from my understanding to Lukashenko as well, or at least Lukashenko has been knowing him for 20 years, there might be middle way of offering him to reinstate Wagner in Belarus because Russian law doesn't allow it and Prigozhin wasn't going to cave. He wasn't going to sign a contract with the Ministry of Defense to be incorporated into that structure and lose his freedom of maneuver, if you will. But perhaps Lukashenko will give him that opportunity, but he would be then acting under Lukashenko. However, Lukashenko and Putin always coordinate their activities. So there is a possibility that he might indeed return. We don't know, but I wouldn't discount that. The reason for that is that he has demonstrated a specific skill set. He has the battle experience necessary, so it would be wasteful not to use him. And for Putin, it might offer a venue um, to eliminate Prigozhin and then say he died fighting for his motherland in Ukraine 
and make it look like he was killed by Ukrainian forces. The possibility is that he might be deployed to Ukraine, or perhaps he will be sent to Africa to run those operations. We don't quite know, because a lot of people are now speculating that Wagner will be killed very quickly. And indeed, it's a liability if he starts talking. That being said, um, if they reach this modus vivendi for now, I think that Putin will want to make use of Wagner, of Wagner's chief, as much as he can. Now, some analysts have suggested that the revolt gave Putin a chance to see who in the Kremlin and within the military were turning against the invasion. Do you think that's true? I think for Putin it was very ideal because he was watching very closely who is going to join Wagner. And now he's going to investigate who knew about this march of justice, which from Putin's perspective, or at least from his narrative, it, it's a you know betrayal, it, it, it's an insurrection. So I think that there will be also kind of major restructuring within the armed forces once he finds those who, A, facilitated Prigozhin to go on his march, and those who knew and didn't do anything. They didn't prevent Prigozhin from doing so, and they didn't inform Putin. So I I think there will be um, some sort of witch hunt happening. And we've seen already some uh, reports from the New York Times about General Sergei Zorovikin, who might have known that uh, Wagner would be doing this march of justice. So it remains to be seen what happens on that front. And does this failed mutiny really spell the end of Wagner, especially after they played such a key role in the conflict up until now? We have to understand the purpose of Wagner. And Wagner has been used as a kind of this foreign policy tool with the benefit of plausible deniability. Um, It has been used to solve specific battlefield tasks, specifically in Syria when um, Palmyra was retaken by uh, Russian and Assad's forces. It was actually the Wagner group doing all the heavy lifting. And then the Russian and Syrian forces came and the journalists and and they celebrated it as a victory for the Russian and Syrian forces. So their offensive capabilities are very good. Right now in Ukraine, that is not needed to that extent. It was needed in Bakhmut, but then from Wagner's own words, he withdrew with his forces and gave the control of the city to the Russian forces. So whatever happened between end of May and now in Ukraine is not because of Wagner, because they are more used like special forces rather than regular troops, whereas the Ukrainian side is on the offensive and the Russians are on the defensive. They don't need Wagner for that. They have built their echelon defenses, which are already creating some problems and slowing down the counteroffensive. You say that Wagner's fighters are not needed at this point in the war, but surely their absence will have an impact on the abilities of Russia's military. 
uh, a lot of things have changed in a year, and I think that um, the Russian forces have also gained some experience and a good feel of what their adversary is capable of, and that their adversary is much more capable than they initially thought. So there might be use of other private military companies which did sign the contract with the Ministry of Defense, and one of them being kind of the Ramzan Kadyrov's group, the, the Ahmad Battalion, which might be used instead of Wagner. And from following Ramzan Kadyrov on Telegram and from his statements, it's evident that he's been a little bit jealous in terms of what Wagner has been assigned to do. And so it might be a way for his group to gain the same kind of popularity that Wagner did in Ukraine, if they can take their place. And then finally, just to ask whether you think this mutiny gives Putin a way out of the war, as he can blame threats to the homeland for pulling out of Ukraine. No, I don't think so. I don't think he wants a way out, per se. I think he wants to strengthen his image and strengthen the necessity to protect Russia, because this war is about protecting Russia from NATO, and um, some of the versions of what might have happened were that uh, Prigozhin was sponsored by the likes of the CIA in order to start an insurrection inside Russia. So I think that only strengthens Putin's resolve to fight Ukraine and NATO, because um, essentially, you know, it's not about Ukraine. It's, it's all about NATO and the collective West that seeks to destroy Russia. So this kind of um, event only reinforces that perception. And besides, the Russian forces on the occupied Ukrainian territories are now fighting on Russian territory, according to Putin, because he annexed those territories, he declared them to be part of Russia. So that concerns Russia as well. Therefore, I think that it only gives him more leeway to initiate another partial mobilization, perhaps. Marina Moran, a postdoctoral researcher at the Defence Studies Department at King's College, London. Staying with the Ukraine war now, a row has blown up between Hungary and Ukraine after Russia transferred 11 Ukrainian prisoners of war to Budapest. Kiev says it wasn't informed about negotiations that led to their release and has blamed Hungary for barring access to the prisoners. The Hungarian government said the release was organised by religious groups without its involvement and that the ex-prisoners face no restrictions. The issue is heightening tensions between the two countries, which are already strained because Hungary has the closest ties with Moscow out of all the 27 EU countries. I asked Inside Europe correspondent in Budapest, Stefan Boss, how the prisoners came to be freed into Hungary's custody. Well, Nick, uh, officially Hungary's uh, right-wing nationalist government has denied it had an active involvement in transferring uh, the detainees. Now, of course, uh, Kiev is not believing uh, that. And it really reads as a uh, detective novel. Uh, several sources say the key to their rescue was the personal friendship uh, between uh, the deputy prime minister, Zolt Semyon, with the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, Patriarch Kirill, 
and uh, they apparently agreed on this uh, deal. And another key player in this uh, prisoner release was the Hungarian Maltese Charity Service. Now, uh, the Russian uh, Patriarchate, uh, they explained that the prisoners of war were in fact being transferred to Hungary. Uh, they said it uh, happened following the church's mediation uh, within uh, uh, the framework of inter-church cooperation. And also, they said, it was actually at the request of the Hungarian side. Now, as I said, it has uh, angered Kiev very much. Uh, it says that uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross should have mediated the transfer under international law. And Ukraine also complained that it wasn't even notified of the plan uh, and that it even didn't know about the prisoners' initial whereabouts. However, Gergely Gulyas, he is the minister heading the prime minister's office, he tried to play down the tensions. Their status is that they are free men. They are not POWs in Hungary. The Orthodox Church brought them to Hungary as free men. They can go back to Ukraine, they can stay here, or they can go to Western Europe to ask for asylum there. And Nick, uh, I can say that several sources now say that at least three of them have returned home already. But at the same time, it's strange that Hungary did not even bother to inform Ukraine about transferring these prisoners of war. Why did the government refuse to share that information with Kyiv? Well, I, I think... We have to see it as part of a broader problem. Uh, the relations between Hungary and Ukraine have uh, worsened uh, since the start of the war in uh, February last year. Uh, Budapest has refused to support even sending weapons, for instance, uh, to the country. And officially, it does not even allow the NATO military alliance, of which it is a member, to transport military hardware over its territory. Now, Hungary's uh, controversial Prime Minister Viktor Orban also maintains a close relationship uh, with Russia. He cites uh, economic reasons, such as Hungary's uh, dependency on Russian energy. However, there are also other reasons, I think. Uh, we know that uh, all prisoners of war brought to Hungary were from Ukraine's Transcarpathia region, which was once part of Hungary. And Orban recently expressed frustration over how ethnic Hungarians living there, and they, by the way, can ask uh, for a Hungarian passport, how they have been treated in Ukraine. Hungary has a very unique situation in this whole war because Ukraine is not a country far away. Ukraine is our neighbor. Second, we have um, minorities, ethnic minorities living in Ukraine, 200,000 something, and they are part of the war. They are conscripted as soldiers to the Ukrainian army, so and they die. So we lose lives daily, Hungarian lives as well. So therefore, we consider this whole situation from a special angle. So we do not belong to the mainstream European approach. But does Ukraine have a point that it says international treaties have been broken here? Yes, of course. I mean, think about uh, the Geneva Conventions, for instance, and other uh, international treaties. So I think they uh, have a point, and it is also a concern, I can tell you, within the EU's Executive European Commission. Uh, it has already demanded an explanation from Hungary's government and Moscow. Uh, it is also the latest uh, standoff between Hungary and Brussels over Ukraine, I have to say, uh, Budapest has uh, 
already blocked EU funding for weapons to Ukraine, and at the same time, Brussels is halting the release of billions of euros in European Union funding to Hungary over rule of law concerns. Now, the Hungarian international law expert Tamas Latman, he says that the move by Budapest undermines Kiev's war effort. And then finally, Stefan, what do you think is going to be the impact on relations between the two countries going forward? I think, Nick, that in the short term they will worsen, but uh, we have also to realize that Ukraine needs Hungary in the near future uh, for its ambitions to one day join the European Union and even the NATO military alliance. Uh, Hungary has veto power on those issues. And for Hungary, I think it was also an opportunity to emphasize its concerns about the perceived crackdown on the culture and linguistic rights of ethnic minorities, including Hungarians in Ukraine. It's uh, the third largest uh, minority there. So I think this could start more negotiations on that issue as well. Inside Europe correspondent in Budapest, Stefan Bos there. Still to come, not content with exploiting its land for fossil fuels, Norway wants to dig for minerals needed for electric cars. And a reminder, you can get in touch with us and leave any feedback on any of the stories you hear. Just email insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Now to the Nordics, where the usually green Norwegian government has ruffled feathers among the environmental movement. Oslo last week announced it wants to open up Norway's continental shelf for deep-sea mining. Minerals found there are needed for the green transition, it argues. Green groups and others are appalled by the idea of the commercial exploration of one of the planet's last great unknown wildernesses. From the Norwegian capital, Lars Bavanger reports. Norway is often portrayed as a champion of green change. Here in Oslo, there are more electric cars than in any other capital city on Earth. Buses and trams are electric and cycle lanes are popping up at a rate of knots. But all these batteries, solar panels and wind turbines that are needed to drive the green transition all need specific minerals and metals to work. The oceans are a vast source for many of these critical minerals. These resources can secure a low environmental footprint supply compared to terrestrial mines and contribute to reduce the geopolitical supply risk. A promotional video from Norwegian company Luke Marine Minerals. It aims to be at the forefront of what it believes can become a huge new industry deep sea mining. Walter Sognes is the CEO of Luca. He argues Norway should be at the forefront for several reasons. We are an ocean nation. We have through decades now shown that we can uh, uh, manage um, 
oil and gas industry in harsh environment. We can manage oil and gas industry together with having a fishing industry and with the highest standard of uh, safety and environmental planning and so on. So we have all the regulations in place for that, which can be transferred into the deep sea mineral industry. The other one is that we have the technology and the skills, the expertise. We've known for a long time that there are minerals like nickel, cobalt, manganese and copper thousands of metres down on the sea floor. But so far the technology to collect them has not been ready and there is still a debate on how to regulate any harvesting of these resources. Yet last week Norway's Labour-led coalition government said it wants to open up a vast area in the Barents and Greenland seas for exploration. Now, this decision has been met with universal condemnation from environmental organisations here and elsewhere. I'm on my way now to meet Carolina Andauer, who is head of the Norwegian branch of WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature. We condemn the decision. We think it's irresponsible. And I was personally very shocked and frustrated about the Norwegian government who claims they want to be leading in sustainable ocean management are making such a short-sighted decision. They argue that we need to find out what is down there and also that these minerals are needed for, not least, for the green transition. All environmental scientists, the Norwegian institutes uh, for environment are all saying the same, that we need more knowledge. So we have to start in the right order. First out, find out how is the ecosystem down there? What kind of impact could you have? And then you consider if deep sea bed mining can happen. At the Ministry of Petroleum and Energy, State Secretary Andreas Bjelland Eriksson from the Labour Party is adamant that Norway has no option but to explore the possibility of deep sea mining. We need to make some really tough decisions uh, as a society. We cannot not look into the opportunity uh, of conducting deep sea mining if that can be done in a sustainable manner. We need to involve private parties together with the government uh, in exploring opportunities, conducting research. Uh, and the only way that we could do that in practice is by conducting an opening process as the first step and then take a step-by-step -step approach going forward. So what does that step-by-step -step process mean in practice? Egil Sjolan is an associate professor at the Department of Geoscience and Petroleum at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. That means that we will start with exploration and the exploration phase will last until we uh, know if there are enough resources to make it uh, economically sustainable then uh, we also have to find out how to do this in a prudent and safe manner. So I wouldn't be surprised if a potential opening for production will be in the yeah, maybe uh, early 30s. Before we open up a huge area, an enormous... Environmentalists like Carolina Andauer argue that this long-term prospect is another reason why deep-sea mining is a non-starter. For the green shift, we need the minerals now, and those you have to find on land, where you have proven methods on how you can do it better for the environment and know the consequences. But for deep sea bed mining, 
it's not going to be likely that they are commercial even to 10 to 15 years. The Norwegian parliament will vote on the government's proposed deep-sea mining plans when it reconvenes in October. Until then, the two sides in this debate will continue to argue about how to best achieve a low-carbon future without endangering more of our environment. Lars Prevanger, DW, Oslo. Don't miss an episode of Inside Europe. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, Turkey labels the annual Istanbul Gay Pride March a terror threat. Local residents cry foul over a polluting Dutch steel plant. I've been a GP here for 25 years or so, and there have always been more chronic illnesses and cancer here. What has become clear over the last few years, because lots of research has been done, that the cause might be very close to us actually just next door. How mafia control of farming in Italy is worsening the abuse of migrant workers. And the contest to encourage young English students to recite poetry by heart. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. There have been dozens of arrests in Turkey after the authorities cracked down on the LGBTQ plus community celebrating Istanbul Pride Week. The event was once one of the biggest in the Muslim-majority countries of the region, but is now struggling to survive, especially as newly re-elected President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is accusing the LGBTQ plus movement of posing a threat to Turkish society. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. <laughs> for three decades, Istanbul Pride Week has been the focal point of the year for Turkey's LGBTQ plus community. Its meetings and events have attracted tens of thousands. Can Kortun is a member of the Istanbul Pride Committee. It's super important because we don't have any place, where we don't have any other location or place that we can actually talk about these things. Um, we don't have any location where we can talk about Muslim feminist LGBTIs. We don't have any place to talk about immigrants LGBTIs. We don't have any place we can talk about our civil rights 
ranging from housing to going to a hospital because LGBTI people, especially trans people, cannot go to the state, state government hospitals. They cannot get anything checked. But the other part is being able to show people that we are not a small number of people. There is thousands and thousands and thousands of us. We have been here all along and we're not going anywhere else. <laughs> Sexual relations between people of the same sex have been allowed, or at least not criminalized, in Turkey since the establishment of the Secular Republic in 1923. But in recent years, the authorities have been cracking down on Pride Week. This year is no different. The center of Istanbul was locked down after the local governor ruled that a planned parade by the LGBTQ plus members was a terror threat. Despite their massive security, participants attempted to go ahead with their pride march, which resulted in over a hundred arrests and heavily armed riot police chasing people through the streets. Just last month, newly re-elected President Recep Tayyip Erdogan used his victory speech to ramp up his anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric. He accused the community of posing an unprecedented threat to family values. Erno Jalam is with Lambda, an Istanbul-based LGBTQ plus group. He says Erdogan sees their movement as a political threat. The political spaces in Turkey have been immensely narrowing more and more. Uh, and the only people who can uh, go out on the street and protest are women and LGBTI+. Of course, at an expense, uh, they, they are being severely punished because of that, but they don't give up. So I think Erdogan has chosen the LGBTI plus community as a target uh, consciously because I think he believes that it's a movement uh, strong enough to be visible and disturbing to some people who are afraid of liberties in the society. Many LGBTQ plus organizations that have developed over the past few decades in Turkey are now struggling to survive under increasing legal pressure, warns Mustafa Sara Yilmaz. He's with the Turkish branch of the Sweden-based Civil Rights Defenders Group. We have activists who, who are facing some jail time and many of those people who were sued they have banned to leave the country, and most of them are like youngsters, uh, university students. They are kind of stuck in a, in a corner. Every single step they wanted to do, every single thing they want to do, are being investigated. So they cannot openly support many people. The cases uh, against us, they are getting bigger and bigger uh, every year, and we don't have uh, enough lawyers to support us. Legal and political pressures are widely predicted to increase and there's an expectation among LGBTQ plus members that things are going to get worse. But veteran activist Erne Jalan says there's also a belief their achievements can't be undone. I grew up in the 80s where there was next to nothing about queer issues in the media, in the society. It was not something that people discussed. And it was very difficult for me to find my way around. And it took a long time. Now, thanks to the movements of 30 years, there's a very different scene. This analogy of trying to squeeze toothpaste into the tube. The toothpaste is out of the tube for a long time now. So no matter 
what they do, no matter how much Erdogan tries. It's not possible to squeeze us back in the closet. That's not possible. That's not going to happen. What's going to happen is we're going to have a hard time for a while. Despite bans on marches, Pride organizers insist they remain committed to keeping the event alive as a symbol of their place in Turkish society. Doreen Jones, DW, Istanbul. Now to the Netherlands, where on the coast near Amsterdam sits one of the largest steel mills in Europe, simply known by the name of its owner, Tata Steel. Local residents until recently looked favourably on the company, a big driver for local jobs, despite the pollution the plant emitted. But that's changing, with residents and activists saying the plant is making people sick and needs to cut emissions. Last weekend, 400 protesters in red jumpsuits broke into the premises, as Fernand Van Tetz reports. Last Saturday, hundreds of activists dressed in red overalls forced their way into Tata Steel, a 750-hectare industrial complex on the Dutch coast, housing 13 factories. Their demand, close Coke factory number two now. The factory leaks on all sides. It leaks through the doors, through the walls of the ovens and through the ascension pipes. So it leaks all over. Local residents say the pollution makes them ill. When I moved here four years ago, I never had a headache. After a month, I started to get headaches. I thought it was probably the stress of the move, but it didn't go away, and it was especially bad when the wind blew southwards. The stench of the Coke 2 factory comes over the village. You can smell it in the whole house. I smell it in my bedroom, but also in my children's bedroom, and that's, of course, very worrying. Yap Veneker lives in Weg an See, a town just south of Tata Steel. He installed cameras at the back of his garden, Perched high on the roof of a bunker in the dunes, they register toxic clouds billowing from the Tata steel chimneys almost every day. What you also see at Coke 2 is raw gas emissions, which is cancer-causing type 1A. Those are yellow clouds. We placed these cameras because we wanted to show the whole of the Netherlands how bad the emissions are. Last week, the local environmental agency placed the two Coke plants under extra surveillance. Yap is especially worried about his two daughters, four-year-old Faye and ten-year-old Maya. I fear for my own children, but there are 150,000 other people who live around the factory, including many families with young children. The Dutch health authorities say the amount of lead and cancer-causing substances in the area is dangerously high. People are 50% more likely to get lung cancer. Luc Verkouteren, a local GP, sees the effects every day. I've been a GP here for 25 years or so, and there have always been more chronic illnesses and cancer here. What has become clear over the last few years, because lots of research has been done, that the cause might be very close to us, actually just next door, Tata Steel. An employee of Tata Steel brought him a pot with black powder. This is what the employees also walk through all day. And if you look properly, you can see the glitters in between. 
This we call coarse dust, which is just harmful. And this is what Tata cleans off the playgrounds every day. Yes, from washing lines, chairs. If you come to clean a playground every day, you should ask yourself, if it's not dangerous, then why would I do that? Unfortunately, economic interests are being placed above health interests, and as a doctor, that's of course unacceptable. Tata Steel Netherlands CEO Hans van den Berg questions the link between poor health and his factories. If there is a link, how strong is the link? So yes, we have to close the plant as soon as possible. It is in the plan to do that. He says coke plant number two will close in 2030. The coke and gas plant number two is a integral part of our uh, total production chain. And it's not easy to take out a part of that supply chain. It's not easy, is it possible? You can buy coke. It is expensive. It has other environmental issues, of course. It has to be produced somewhere else. So the best way to do it is to have the warm coke, the high quality coke that we can uh, produce ourselves. And especially, I would say, to, to solve whatever emissions we have and whatever problems we have here within our own premises. Closing the coke plant is part of a planned transition to hydrogen-based green steel. It will require billions of funding from the Dutch government and take decades. More than 1,200 residents are tired of waiting and have filed charges for pollution against Tata and its CEO. The public prosecutor has opened an investigation. Fernand van Tetz, DW, The Netherlands. From Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Inside Europe. Let's turn to Italy now, where tourists are often given a rather idyllic picture of country life. But for those trying to make a living in the agricultural sector, the reality is anything but... Many workers, including migrants, are subjected to inhumane work and living conditions due to the presence of organised crime. Mafia groups are particularly active in farming in the south, the poorest half of Italy. Reporters Giada Santara, Claudia Caliva and Sofia Alfares Horado went on the ground to understand how this impacts workers' daily lives. But the names of those they spoke to have been changed for privacy reasons. Around 6 p.m. on a warm afternoon in early June, music starts playing inside Europe's largest informal settlement. Migrant workers are returning to their homes after a long day of work and crowd the dusty streets of Borgo Mezzanone. The shanty town is located in the Foggia province of Puglia, the Italian region with the highest number of people working in agriculture. It hosts between 3,000 and 4,000 people coming from northern and sub-Saharan Africa with a minority of Eastern Europeans and Roma people. Most are migrants stuck in the web of Italian bureaucracy and a housing market unwelcoming to foreigners of color. Some rent a shack for the summer months due to high demand for seasonal agricultural workers. Hakim, from Ghana, used to be one of the leaders of Borgomedzenone's community. In June, he finally secured a job in the north of Italy that allowed him to move out of the shanty town. For many summers, he worked illegally in tomato fields. They are playing a kind of mafia game. They will do the contracts and they keep it with them. They don't give it to you. When there is a control in the farms, then they run home and bring the contract to start sharing it to the people. So even we, we are not asking for contract because it's not going to yield anything. Mafia is often used as an umbrella term to refer to various forms of illegality. 
Labor exploitation is endemic in Italian agriculture, so much so that organized crime is only one aspect of it. Organized crime, in its regional ramifications, often acts as a bridge to employers, offering opportunities to teams of workers and providing transportation for a costly fee. In Borgo Mezzanone, drivers are often agricultural workers of migrant origin themselves. Hakim defends them. Nobody is ready to drive into this place to give us jobs. So they take their time, energy, you know, to go around to the farms and bring us jobs. So we stand by them. No matter how, 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 you, how much you jail them, you know. Who do you have to blame? You have to blame the government or the farm owners. They put, I mean, the responsibility into the hands of our own immigrant brothers, you understand? And without them, life will be very, very difficult. Who do you go to for a job? You understand? So they take the responsibility and the risk to bring jobs to our doormat. This system does not only exploit migrants. It extends to many Italian workers without their own means of transportation. The female workforce is particularly vulnerable to organized crime. In Italy, around 60,000 women work in agriculture, and many are low-income single parents. At the age of 14, Elvira began working in agriculture under organized crime. Nearly 40 years later, she organizes teams and provides legal transportation to female workers in her city, close to Taranto, also in Puglia. However, the cheaper prices offered to employers by organized crime have cost her more than one job. They don't care because they just want to save money. At a company I worked at last year, we were booted out because it was more expensive to hire my team, with legal transportation and everything. Conchetta, a younger colleague of hers, was pushed to never take days off so her supervisor wouldn't lose out on the money he was making off of her. As they make money on each person, let's say they are earning 10 euros on your work, the day you skip work, it's like they are losing 10 euros, so it's like they require you to be there. Even if you are sick, it doesn't matter. According to the Italian Agromafia Observatory, around 180,000 agricultural workers were victims of organized crime in 2019. This is what Daniele Iacovelli, a trade unionist in the city of Foggia, had to say about it. From our point of view, halting organized crime, or at least workers' exploitation, would be a fairly simple thing. The problem is that if you take action of this sort, you will bring agriculture in Foggia to a halt. I am not asking authorities to arrest workers, of course not, or even all employers. But if 12 or 13 people are seen leaving a shantytown in a van, I want to know where they are going and whether they have a work contract. Both Elvira and Conchetta have children that they are raising alone. Elvira's daughter wants to join the military like her father. Conchetta's son wants to be a footballer. Both mothers hope their children are able to leave and find a better life than the one they have. But then again, neither of them wanted to be an agricultural worker when they were children either. Conchetta is skeptical things will ever change. I've been in contact with people who have been doing this for so many years. It becomes normal life. They push you into accepting these practices. You were the youngest, so you must shut up and not speak up. Even if you try to explain the injustice to others, they've been brainwashed. And it's difficult to make them understand their rights. And these people play on those weaknesses. 
To address widespread illegality, Italy promised to elaborate a system capable of withdrawing European funds from agricultural companies responsible for human rights violations. The National Labor Inspectorate, in charge of implementing an enforcement system, has not rendered any information public. According to FlyGGL, the largest trade union of agricultural workers in Italy, developments have so far been lagging. What is certain is that as things stand, organized crime continues to fill the void left by public institutions. That report was by Giada Santara, Claudia Caliva and Sofia Alvarez-Horado and was made possible thanks to the Journalism Fund Europe and the European Journalism Centre. And if you're a Europhile and you'd like to stay abreast of the latest news throughout the week, check out our website dw.com or the DW Europe social media pages. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. Poison in the water, still the fact remains. You deny it ever happened, deny it ever will, deny it ever happened, but it keeps on happening still. There's poison in the water, poison in the rain. Poison in the water, still the fact remains. You deny it ever happened, deny it ever will, deny it ever happened, but it keeps on happening still. And now for something we rarely feature on Inside Europe, poetry. Celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, Poetry by Heart is a free-to-enter national competition for schools and colleges in England. Students between the ages of 7 and 18 can take part by choosing a poem, learning it by heart and performing it at school. Staff then choose their favourites and submit entries via video upload. Aimed at changing the way teachers as well as young people perceive poetry, the idea is paying off. This year, a record number of young people took part, with judges watching 2,000 videos to select the finalists. The competition's grand finale took place Monday at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London, and our reporter Danny Mitzman was there. Ben like old beggars on the sacks, knock need coughing like hags. We cast. What's your name? Uh, Mohammed. And how old are you? Uh, Ten. What was it like being on the stage at the Globe? I was a bit nervous, but it was exciting. What was the best bit? The best bit was when I could watch the other key stage two finalists say their poem. What was your poem? Dolce at the Quarimest. And how long did it take you to learn it? About, like, three weeks. What's the thing you like best about poetry? Uh, I like that you can express your feelings and show the audience how serious you are and how much you mean it. We have a job for you, he said. God, in his big gold heaven, sitting in his big blue chair, wanting a mother. There can be no better place in England for the grand finale of a national poetry speaking competition than the theatre of the great bard himself. Yeah, as someone who loves Shakespeare, to be on one of the most prestigious stages in the world is incredible. In their final school year, Alistair, Catherine and Jennifer are all poetry enthusiasts. 
I love how it tells the story. I think as a child, I remember like Albert and the Lion and the Jabberwocky and those ones. And I grew up sort of listening to poetry. I love how musical poetry is as well. With like novels and books, it takes a whole book to create something that can be created in a few lines of poetry. So when it's done effectively, it's really impressive. The sharp white teeth, the horrid grin, and Wolfie said, May I come in? Poor Grandma was terrified. He's going to eat me up, she cried. I think for me the most important benefit of working with a poem in the way that we advocate is the enjoyment of poetry. It's that um, engagement, it's choosing a poem that speaks to you and really giving it your voice and lifting it off the page and not just your own enjoyment but the way that that connects young people to the listener, whether that's one person or their class or their school or 800 people at Shakespeare's Globe. It makes connections. Ten years ago, Dr Julie Blake co-founded Poetry by Heart together with the former poet laureate Sir Andrew Motion. Their combination of educational and poetic insight have proved a winning formula. The curriculum has become funnelled into technical analysis and poets don't see poems like that. They see them as things that are to be spoken, to be shared between people, to be given life in breath and pulse and heartbeat. And that's what we wanted to bring into poetry and education. The distinction I always make in my own mind is between learning things by rote, which is basically a pain in the neck and sounds like a chore, and, and learning by heart, learning something by heart, which implies that you're doing it as a kind of emotional necessity and that you're going to be nourished by it once this, whatever it is, is, is inside you. Poet and judge Daljit Nagra wholeheartedly agrees. Poetry, when I used to teach poetry at schools, it, there was no value given to the emotional response to the poem, but much more to your ability to break it down as though you're trying to dismantle a car engine. So I sympathise with children when they say they hate poetry, whereas with poetry by heart, it's all about the emotional engagement with the poem. Hopefully every child comes alive when they read the poem and they feel 100% fully committed in the landscape, the world of the poem, as though they're walking through it. Get off, you terrible inhabitor of silence. I'll not have it. Get away to whoever it is will have you. For months, teachers all over the country have been preparing their classes for poetry by heart. This year, a record 90,000 young people took part, with 37,000 learning a poem by heart for the competition. It's so emotional, because you only have a few seconds or a few minutes to, to recite that poem, so you have to make the best out of it. You have to make it as, as emotional and as triggering or as happy as you can, as you can do it. That's 14-year-old Andrea, who's found performing poetries really boosted her confidence. My audience is my favourite thing and I'm just really glad that I could have my close friends watch me today. Afterwards I was, I was relieved and it felt so nice to have it over and to know that I did well and I was proud of myself no matter the outcome. A hundred students from every part of England are performing here today, some in the individual competition categories, others doing freestyling groups. The Kingfishers from Riverside Primary School near Liverpool opened the event with their Shakespeare medley. 
head teacher Christina Lahive can't take the smile off her face. I couldn't be more proud because when I was at secondary school, I was really excited to be studying Shakespeare, and the words that my teacher said to me have remained with me ever since. She declared, "We were going to do Shakespeare this term, but he's just not for you, lot." And now to have them performing at the Globe, I cannot tell you what that means to me. Or to the thirteen pupils she's brought, including Joseph, Oscar, and Stephen. The best thing about poetry is that it takes you to another world. What's the best thing about this competition for you? I'm um, getting to come here to London because we came all the way from um, Merseyside. Have you been here before? No, I've never been here. Wow. What's the best thing for you? Um, probably the experience because you don't really get to come to London and perform in the Globe Theatre every day. Poets like Liz Berry have been getting a tangible thrill out of judging the entries. You automatically feel it. It's something about the electricity of the performance, a feeling that the performer is able to get under the skin of the poem to really feel it. There's something about capturing sort of the emotions and the depth of the poem that I think I'm looking for, and I'm always amazed how really young performers, and some of them are so young. Can hold the great emotions of these poems and then express them and communicate them in sort of thrilling ways, moving ways, really funny ways. It's sort of an endless source of delight. My mum, she is hopping. Sinews are happening. Wiry arms developing their full reach. No bad thing. The teachers I've talked to today say poetry by heart's really helping overturn the idea that poetry speaking's just for the most intellectual or confident kids. And Julie Blake says poetry's at last starting to lose its dusty reputation. I think that the reputation of poetry is changing, and I think it's connected to all sorts of factors. You can't put your finger on one. Some people will find their route to poetry through song or through rap or through watching YouTube videos of someone who's doing something. Young people come to poetry th through all kinds of doors, and it doesn't matter which door they come through. Mohammed, you won. Yeah. How do you feel? Great. Are you going to come back and do it in 2024 as well? If I'm allowed. Congratulations. Thank you. Danny Nitzman, DW, talking to a poetry rock star in the making. A reminder to hit the subscribe button for Inside Europe wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss an episode. And all positive reviews help other people to find the show. This programme was produced by Helen Sini and sound engineer Mikhail Springer. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for tuning in. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.